Okay, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum, everybody. Welcome to Tuesday night. Um, I am looking forward to what I imagine is going to be a really super duper incredible Sora because usually, um, if you know what's been happening behind the scenes over here, you get a sense of how, how the, the halakas are going to go. Um, because we actually have had a really difficult, the Sheikh has had a really difficult several days, and um, you know, the thing that health-wise, pain-wise, um, and you know, the further we get into these surahs, the more I think you recognize that, um, you know, I, I say this without trying to sound like, you know, just tooting our own horn, but I think if you've been with us and you've been joining us, you know like the importance of what we're doing and like how transformative it is I know in my own situation, like with every single surah, you just are reminded of the intimacy of God, like in your in your life, if you so choose. Um, and I think that it's one thing to sort of theoretically, I've met lots of people who are like, yes, we believe in God. Yes, we believe that God knows everything. Yes, God is closer than your jugular vein and all of the typical things that you hear people say. Um, but I think there's a power to like learning these surahs, you know, every few days and you're reminded again and again that God is literally like with you. Like you are, you know, you just, if you truly embrace it and feel it and believe it. And I, I feel like it's such a source of strength and such a source of power if you really open your heart to it. And especially when things start to go wrong and, um, you know, I believe I, and I've, I've said to people here, as we get deeper and deeper into these um, surahs and as we cover more and more, um, I believe that we will meet with more resistance. Because if you truly believe that, you know, God is, you know, with you and also what God tells you, that shaitan is your arch enemy. And, you know, again, you have a lot of people who say, yes, yes, you know, shaitan is your arch enemy. But if you really believe that, if you really start to see it, you really start to internalize that, and you start to see things in your life, you know, so that your, your lived life and your theoretical understanding of things start to mer merge together, where you actually start to live and feel things, um, which I think has been an incredible blessing for a lot of us here through this process, um, you, you know, you start feeling a dynamic and you start recognizing things um, that, that are completely life transformative. So, you know, certainly like we've talked in the past about, you know, quote unquote, uh, devil attacks or whatever. But, you know, it's like you, you really need to reflect on like, okay, when you are trying to do something good and things start emerging that are, you know, sometimes just you know, I mean, we know there's no coincidences, but when you start to experience things and then you ask God to help and you ask, you know, you start doing prayers, you start increasing, you know, your involvement and, and intimacy with God and then you see something change. These things are all like extremely validating. Um, and so, you know, for example, when Sheikh was feeling really sick um, yesterday, we actually spent time doing a lot of prayers, which, you know, is something that I kind of like have witnessed other people do and that I've heard about and have sort of kept in the realm of the theoretical, never thought that I necessarily, you know, had the ability to do anything. I'm not saying that I do, but I'm, you know, but when you start to believe that if you call upon God and you start like, you know, praying and asking and you see something happen that releases some 
negativity, you know, all of these things just make you feel so grateful that um, God is with you. And so, you know, I, I, a lot of times in these introductions, I kind of try to keep things sort of, you know, generic and not necessarily um, as directly like, hey, God is this and God is that. Maybe I do, maybe I don't, I don't know. But I guess what I'm trying to say is, we're, I think we've reached the point now where we've covered enough surahs that if we don't start embracing this idea that God is truly with you and that Shaitan is truly your, you know, um, avowed enemy and that that doesn't factor into how you live your life and how you ask for help or how you understand things, then this has not transformed you sufficiently. Um, and we've had enough experiences now to, to really confirm that when you open your heart and your life to entrust to God, um, yes, the darkness increases, but so does the power of the light. And um, so I just want to you know, say for the record that I hope that if you've been with us on these journeys, that you embrace that, that truth because it's not theoretical. And you know, I think the sooner that um, your you know, theoretical understanding of life and faith merge with your lived reality, the sooner you really transform and feel the effect of these sorrows. And, um, you know, and I'm, I'm so grateful for experiencing, you know, all the different things that have confirmed to me that, you know, we're making progress as we learn. Um, all of us here, I think, have, have experienced and witnessed things that um, help us understand that I think what we're doing here is very important and we're on the right track, inshallah, inshallah, and may Allah help us to finish this mission. So please continue to pray for us, pray for Sheikh, and you know, and I, I'm looking forward to what I imagine now after the last few days is gonna be like a surah that is just out of this world, inshallah. So thank you. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Subhanallah al-Ali al-Azim, alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wassalatu wassalam ala Muhammad, al-Nabi al-Ameen. المرسل رحمة للعالمين خاتم النبيين وعلى آله وصحبه واتبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري واسر لي أمري وحل العقدة من لساني يفقه قومي إن شاء الله today we will talk about سورة المعارج Um, after the last halakha, uh, surat, surat Ibrahim, um, Rami, uh, one of the students here, made a comment that um, the the uh, the tafsir allows one to understand why the early Muslims were willing to sacrifice everything for the Islamic message. And this comment really resonated with me um, because that's and, and it, it's it, it's precisely what. Uh, the purpose of this entire approach is, as I said before many times, that it's to, to
to try to capture the original impulse, the the um, the the message that was conveyed by each surah as it was received, and the way that the early Muslims understood this meaning in its in its unadulterated and pure form. Uh, and I, I really do, um, you know, uh, only Allah knows what the future is, and but I really do pray that uh, this tafsir, this method, everything that we cover together will will have its ripple effects, and perhaps will empower Muslims to fall in love with the Qur'an once again, once they understand its, its remarkable moral mission, and not just moral message, but moral mission. So, Surah Al-Ma'arij, um, most authorities say that Surah Al-Ma'arij was revealed in the Middle Meccan period. Interestingly, at the same time, most authorities say that Surah Al-Ma'arij was revealed after Surah Al-Haqqa, uh, which presents us with a rather interesting um, puzzle, if you will. Um, if it is revealed, I mean, the, the, the crux of the issue is whether it's revealed after al-Isra or before al-Isra. And if we track what a lot of the purports say about when al-Haqqa was revealed, for instance, that al-Haqqa itself was revealed after Surat al-Mulk, al-Mulk was revealed um, after Surat al-Tur, al-Tur was revealed after Surat al-Sajda, and so on, then we would come to the conclusion that Surat al-Ma'arij was revealed after al-Isra. Um, But we know that the Isra itself was revealed towards the beginning of the late Meccan period, uh, not really the middle period. And these types of puzzlements you, you often confront as we try to date the Surah of the Quran. <coughs> And um, you can spend a considerable amount of time studying the reports and the transmissions and looking at who said what. I think that Surat al-Ma'arij was revealed um, shortly after Surah Al-Isra. I mean, when I say shortly, I mean pr 
probably right after Surah Al-Isra. Um, which, which in my opinion, Allahu A'lam, would make it um, towards the beginning of the late Meccan period. So in the last two or three years in Mecca, on Allahu A'lam, and as we will see, its its message um, on the one hand it's contextual, and on the one hand it does address something that the Prophet Muhammad confronted in Mecca uh, as a as a consistent issue. But on the other hand, its message is timeless. And um, the impact of Surah Al-Ma'arij on Islamic culture generally is enormous. I mean, the, if you try to track uh, the number of books that have, and I'm not talking about tafsir. I'm talking about uh, books on theology or books on hadith or uh, even books on sharia that uh, segue or have discussions on parts of Surah Al-Ma'arij or certain ayat of Surah Al-Ma'arij, um, they are just an enormous number. I mean, so you're talking about a surah that just ha had a, um, a profound impact on the formation of Islamic culture and even the formation of Islamic language um, in terms of the expressions and the, the, the linguistic practice of Muslims. Um, And if one properly understands Surah Al-Ma'arish, if you understand its meaning and you internalize its meaning, in my view, it would be hard to imagine that a human being's life would be the same. Um, if you if you internalize the meaning of Surah Al-Ma'arij, yeah, you just can't see things the same way. Um, the challenge is, of course, like a lot of Surah on the Quran, is to internalize the meaning. Because although you might understand what the words are saying, but as we often say that uh, it is one for one thing for you to understand something intellectually, but it is quite another for your consciousness to catch up with your intellect. Um, we often understand things rationally, but it, our consciousness remains resistant, and it, consciousness is. Is, the, is what type of reactions are produced within you uh, instantaneously. 
it's the, the, the first thought that springs in your mind. Uh, it is what you're comfortable or uncomfortable with. It is what you naturally gravitate towards, naturally like or dislike. And there's a huge gap between what you might believe intellectually and that very tricky thing called consciousness. Um, and if your consciousness catches up with your intellect in Surat al-Ma'arij, uh, it, it is a formidable thing. It's a very powerful thing. So, inshallah, let's delve in. سأل سائل بعذاب واقع للكافرين ليس له دافع Immediately the, 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 the beginning draws you in because it effectively study Quran Quran says a questioner asked about an impending punishment upon the disbelievers which none can avert. So so the beginning will draw you in into um, sort of a a, um, a bit of a puzzle, you know, or or, or something that that requires your attention to to work out. Um, The, the grammatical phrasing of سَأَلَ سَائِلٌ بِعَذَابٍ وَاقِعٍ Linguistically, if it says سَأَلَ سَائِلٌ عَنْ عَذَابٍ وَاقِعٍ that then would mean someone asked about the punishment that is going to come. But if you say, as it does here, سَأَلَ سَأَلٌ بِ not عَن عَذَابٍ then actually the meaning here is that it connotes that someone is actually praying for the punishment to come. Someone is asking for it. Someone's saying, where is this punishment you're talking about? And of course, anything that begins with someone is asking, that begs the question, well, who's asking? And why is... Why is it important for me to pay attention and be invested in this discourse, whatever it is? And 
here, of course, we have a number of reports as to what was contextually taking place um, at the time of, uh, I forgot one thing, um, but Surat al-Ma'arij, by the way, uh, initially, early on, there were there there were some reports that of people that thought it should be called Surat al-Mawaqa. There were also reports of people that thought it should be known as Surat Sa'al Sa'il. Um, but these two traditions ultimately failed. And what became the dominant opinion is Surat al-Ma'arish. And I, I think that, that it's a good thing that that became the dominant opinion because, in fact, that's that calling it Surat al-Ma'arish is very important for capturing the meaning of the surah rather than Surat al-Mawaqa or Surat al-Sa'il and so on. Okay. So, we have a number of reports, right? We have reports that Mudar uh, ibn Harith, uh, who is one of the uh, kuffar in Mecca, was an arch enemy of the Prophet والسلام, and Muslims, and who fought against Muslims in the Battle of Badr and was actually killed in the Battle of Badr. We have that Mudar ibn Harith, would defy the Prophet and say, oh, well, this, this punishment that you keep telling us, this accountability that you keep talking about, uh, well, if it's true that there is such a punishment, well, may Allah bring it down, you know, say something, Allah, in kana hadha huwa al-haq, مِنْ عِنْدَكْ فَمْطِرْ عَلَيْنَا بِحِجَارَةٍ مِنَ السَّمَاءِ That may, if this in fact is true, then may Allah bring down this punishment upon us right now. So that, you know, some reports say that Al-Mudar ibn Harith would mock the Prophet and mock the entire message of Muslims and say, well, you know, I wish it would happen now. Why wait? Other reports say that no, it was Harith ibn Umar al-Fihri, um, which is an interesting figure, figure in Islamic, uh, or in, um, as again, an arch enemy, that is the one who used to say that. Other reports yet say no, it was Abu Jahl who would say things like that. But, you know, All of them are probably correct, and none of them are correct. Meaning that it is the most natural thing if people who are believing Muslims, the thing that they wonder about the most is when is the final day coming. So it is more, it is entirely logical that non-Muslims, that kuffar, 
would, the thing that they would be skeptical about the most is the idea of a final day and a hereafter. And that they would defy the Prophet and that they would tease and that they would uh, mock the the Prophet by constantly harping on the, th- the idea of the hereafter. And I think that the issue is not that they would say, oh, may it come upon us, um, or whether they are saying, when is it? But it's alerting you to something at the heart of faith. And the belief in accountability. That is what is at the heart of faith. If someone is coming to you and says, you know, because what what we struggle with is the issue of timing. It's a time-space relationship. So what I mean by this is, is that if someone comes and puts on the table, you know, tons of money, all the money that I would ever want, and but they're standing there with a gun, and they say, go ahead, take this money. If you take this money, I'm going to shoot you. I'm not going to take the money, right? Because you know you're going to get shot. Similarly, if someone comes and says, you know, a bit, so here, the reason I'm, I don't respond to the temptation is because the threat is right there, present, immediate. Now, let's, if, if someone says, you know, um, if you go with this woman, her father is a member of the mob and they will abduct you and torture you. The threat here is less immediate. But from my experiences as a human being, it's still very credible. And I might very well say, okay, well, I'm gonna keep away because I know that this is very likely. You know, someone whose father is in the mob, they have the ability to abduct me and torture me. This thing, with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is that so many of us who are believers not even disbelievers but believers the reason we still sin is because the threat is not immediate so in fact a very critical question that is part of what we struggle with in the formation of our consciousness is that time-spatial relationship. 
Why would I, as a believer, sin? Well, I'm sinning because I believe that, well, you know, the punishment is not immediate. Maybe I have time. Maybe the punishment is not real. Or maybe even if the punishment is real, maybe I'll have opportunity to, to repent. Or maybe God will forgive. Maybe, you know, God will overlook it. Maybe I have an excuse. Maybe, maybe a lot of it's very different than if the money is on the table and the person is standing with a gun and saying, if you take it, I'm going to shoot you. This is what we mean by consciousness. Intellectually, I might in fact believe that there is accountability. But my consciousness resists the intellectual belief. Now, so that opening, Sa'ala Sa'ilun, the grammar is incredible. It is like saying, it is really precisely like Allah saying to us, I know. I know that this is what your consciousness struggles with. And in fact, as we will see, Although you don't admit that this is what your consciousness struggles with, this is, in fact, what your consciousness struggles with. But I am your God, and I'm telling you, that azab, that accountability, is not a matter of if. It is as absolute as that person standing with the gun saying, if you take the money, I'm going to shoot you. But as Allah will explain to us what the problem is, why is it that we respond the way we respond? There is no if, ands, or buts. When it comes to kuf, when it comes to kuf, there is nothing that's going to stop the punishment. You want, they can go ahead, believe whatever you want, make all the types of excuses that you want, but it is as absolute and certain. But here's the thing. As so many have written, the hadith of the Prophet والسلام, that when a Muslim commits a sin, when a Muslim drinks alcohol, they don't they don't drink alcohol as a believer. When they fornicate, they don't fornicate as a believer. Meaning what? Meaning that at the moment that you are sinning, you suspend 
the internalization of belief. So you are, in fact, saying, um, yeah, I understand God's commands. This is was was you know was voluntary, especially voluntary habitual sins. I understand God's commands, but I am, for whatever reasons, I'm not obeying. So there is an element of kuf, not complete kuf, but an element of kuf. And kuf means what? Kuf means ingratitude, rejection, repulsion. So an element of rejecting belief when you commit a sin. We'll come back to this. Now then it says, Minallahi Zil Ma'arish. Ta'arujul Malaikutu wa Ruhu ilayhi fi yawmin kana miqdaru khamsina alfa sana. Immediately, Allah Zil Ma'arish, God, Lord of the Ascending Ways. Ma'arij, of course, is a fantastic expression. We, we, we know already about the Isra' wal Ma'raj, right? And we know that it is the ascending. Well, one thing is that the Ma'raj, that word Ma'raj, comes from the word Araja. And Araja means to ascend, but you don't ascend directly. You, you ascend with some distortion. Now, it's interesting because, of course, in the modern age, we know that the people who, who, who talk about science on the Quran, they've noticed that, you know, if you, if you go up in the, in the atmosphere, uh, the thing that you're contending with is that all bodies have gravitational pulse. And so, even light, when it ascends, it, it doesn't ascend in a straight line. It's bent by gravity. So it's interesting that the, the expression ma'arish, it, it means, implies crookedness. That's one, one of the, the, you know, it's rather just an interesting point. But, but when you see the Lord of Ascensions. And, of course, the ayah that comes after that says that angels and the rawh, and we'll talk about the rawh in a second, but the angels and, uh, as a filler, let's say, the spirit, the rawh, ascends to God in 50,000 years. This, of course, the garnered huge discussion. One, we know that a 
as um, especially in, in the Sufi-esque tradition. In the Sufi-esque tradition, the, the, uh, like in, in, in Tafsir al-Janabi, it says, معراج لعباده السالكين وله معارج بعدد النفوس السالكين ومعارجه بعدد أنواع الموجودات so in, in, in Janabi which is rather typical of Sufi-esque traditions the, it says that ascension is not just referring to angels reaching the throne of God, but that ascensions means the pathways to the Lord. And Janabidi, which is again representatives of many of the Sufi traditions, say that the pathways to the Lord are as specific and unique as the number of um, as the number of as the the, the number of cre created things so you take the number of individuals and the pathways to the Lord could be as numerous as the number of human beings on on the face of this earth but for more the the outside the Sufi-esque tradition especially, because the Quran specifically says that the angels ascend 50,000 years, well, they paused at this and said, well, what does that mean? Does it mean that God's throne is in a location, and then when Gabriel, when Gabriel, uh, the, uh, uh, for instance, comes with a revelation, he travels from the throne to earth, or that when angels perform certain obligations, some even started pontificating about whether there are angels in the first heavens and then angels in the second heavens and then angels in the third heaven and whether you know they, that takes a shorter period of time but not, none of this is um, has anything reliable to back it up what's interesting is that in several places in three different places the Quran says that A day of a day of your Lord is equal to a thousandth of what you count. And people who are interested in, in the relationship between science and the Quran, when they calculated that, they found that it is a little bit more than the speed of light. A thousandth of what you count is equal to a little bit more than the speed of light. And of course this was, you know, the Quran was, when the Quran was revealed, no one knew about the speed of light. And people, you know, that, that idea didn't exist. 
But it's rather interesting, right? Now, 50,000 would be far more than the speed of light. And there then developed a, a discussion that boiled down to two positions. The first position said that that when it says 50,000, the, the, the grammatical construction of the sentence, this is sort of a, a grammar point, that what it's really saying is that it is the final day when it refers to the yawm that is equal to 50,000 years, it's referring to the final day. And that final day is what is equal to 50,000 years. So that's, cool. that's the first perspective. And what bolstered that position is a hadith from the Prophet wasalam, uh, where The Prophet reportedly says that the final day, Yawm al-Qiyamah, will be equal to 50,000 years. And some of the companions responded when they heard this by saying, um, Ma atwala hadha, you know, God, oh my, that's extremely long. You know, the day of judgment will be equal to 50,000 years. And the Prophet ﷺ reportedly responds to this by saying, uh, you that the prophet response say but for a believer a believer is not or a person who who's saved is not going to feel the 50,000 years that for a someone who's saved it's going to feel like as the, like they've been waiting as long as it takes one to pray a single prayer on earth the people who are going to feel the agony of the slow passage of time will be those who are not saved. They're literally stuck in waiting in this, this extremely stressful condition for a very, very long time. So that's all within the first. The second perspective, because this hadith is is of debatable reliability um, 
And because the argument about grammar itself is controversial, they said, no, the point is not to tell you that that when Gabriel travels between earth and heaven, it takes Gabriel 50,000 years. The point is to tell you that if you, as a human being, travel this distance and you stuck to earth time, the, the way time works on earth, it would be 50,000 years before you reach the realm of the divine. But once you leave Earth, time and space cease to have meaning. So while telling you if you experience time in terms of earth time as you're traveling it would be 50,000 years but it doesn't mean that this is in fact what Gabriel experiences or any or as we'll talk about the Ruh in a second or any any of the angels experience which is remarkable when you read this discussion it is the amazing thing is what they're discussing is the concept of relativity. But long before the discovery of relativity, what they're saying is time and space is relative. What they're saying is that you experience time on Earth the way you experience it. Of course, they didn't know gravity, but they came very close to the idea of the limitations but once you come out of the realm of earth then when Allah says 57, 57 uh, 50,000 years well, Allah is is giving you a measure so that you can imagine the distance but not telling you that this is the actual time that passes Okay, so we know when Allah says angels travel and it takes them so long, but what does it mean when Allah says Arrawah, the spirit? And here you get a lot of, there's a lot of discussion. There are those who said what Allah is talking about is Allah is saying that when spirits ultimately at some point travel that realm of course today we know about things like wormholes and things like that and so we can understand why our sense of what the way you sense time is going to be very different but in fact this is what the spirits are traveling an, an enormous amount of distance uh, if felt by earthly measures that's how it would feel but they would feel it very different 
in the Suvias tradition, they've understood the Rauh all in terms of the ascension, the spiritual ascensions to the Lord by those who are seeking the Lord. So, in the, and so you understand what I'm talking about in the, in the, in the Sufias traditions, you, you'll have some of the great Sufis that will say, you know, I, they'll have a vision where they rose to the throne and they uh, went around the throne so they, they imagine that they actually leave their bodies and they, you know, travel these great distances. Uh, but the Sufi tradition, I mean, on that point, it's so vast. Um, okay. Others said that no, the Rauh is is not human spirits, and it's not something like Sufi esque ascensions. It the Rauh refers to Gibril specifically, so it's angels and Gibril. Yet others, some of the most interesting points I, I've um, I've read are those who said the Rauh, and it's just interested because I'm interested in things like that that it refers to things that are neither human, nor angels, nor jinn, and the, the, that exist in the spheres. And the, the reason, of course, it's interesting, because when I read that, it reminds me of modern-day sightings of UFOs. And they say, so it's, it's in effect, in our modern language, uh, the UFOs can travel these distances. But of course then the problem with that view is, well, they don't travel to the throne of God. I mean, you know, why would they? Who knows what the UFOs are, but... Um, okay. So now, let's go back though. The point in my view is precisely this relativity of time issue. It's, we started out by saying the reason you go wrong is because you imagine that a, a year, ten years, a hundred years, a thousand years, ten thousand years is a long time. And that because there is no one standing there with a gun at your head saying, if you do this, I'm going to punish you. So to you, it's remote. But Allah takes you into a different way of say, seeing things and saying, Remember, you are living in a temporal reality defined by space and time. But if you understand the world of Ghaib, in the world of Ghaib, 50,000 years, for you it's a big deal. But for in from the divine realm, 
50,000 years is as immediate as someone standing there dealing immediate punishment, if needs be, if need be. It is, again, you might think that 50,000 years means that Allah is far away. But that's only because you, as a human being, you think in terms of your very limited experience with time and space. 50,000 years from the divine perspective, Allah is immediate and next to you. Because in fact, time and space, time is relative. And you don't understand these spatial relationships And because you don't understand these spatial relationships, that's what hampers your consciousness. So then that point is affirmed by then addressing the Prophet and says, Fasbir sabran jamila. Sabr jamil. study Quran just translates it as beautiful patience. Be patient a beautiful patience. A sabr al-jameel is the type of patience that is not tormented and is not full of bitterness. It is telling the Prophet and the followers of the Prophet the way you see things, the reason your patience has to be beautiful is because you have to adopt the perspective of reality that is being conveyed to you in Surah Al-Ma'arish. That perspective of reality is summed up in that precisely they see it as far away, but we, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, sees it as immediate. Which is exactly the point that I was making. Now, some commentators even, because of this point that we see it far away and we see it as immediate, they speculated that it must be that the earth will exist for 50,000 years and then the but that you know or not the earth sorry human life will exist for 50,000 years and then the the final day will come but again that's just speculation now now to underscore this point about the nature of reality. The sky, the study Quran says when the sky is as molten lead, 
there, there, we, we can go into, I mean, there's a lot of discussion about w- what um, what al precisely means in this context because there are many different meanings. But what we can sum it up as the sky is going to look red and remarkably different. In fact, it is going to look like as if the sky is collapsing, meaning you go to look up and the reality that you are familiar with that surrounds this earth is going to be very different. So different that the description of it, it, it there is nothing that we can relate to. Some said that Al-Mul even means like um, uh, uh, the leftover chemicals when you clean something, the, the sort of the grime left at the bottom. But regardless, that we don't have a frame of reference. And well, that the mountains themselves are going to be as if carded wool, meaning that the, the reality of mountains as a firm, rocky thing itself will be altered. Now, you can imagine car- the carded walls. What does that mean? You know, are the mountains going to explode? But if they explode, why is that carded walls? Are the mountains going to become like fluffy mountains, uh, fluffy clouds, and you can walk on mountains and jump on them like fluffy clouds? Yeah, we have no frame of reference. Precisely like what Allah says about time. As long as, and this is a really important point about Surah Al-Ma'arij because you'll see it, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. As long as you continue wedded to your material outlook, as long as you can understand things only in terms of what you experience in your material earth, you are going to have time. You're going to have a hard time doing what Surah Al-Ma'arij demands that you do. And we'll see what it demands that you do, but it's telling you, you need to understand that this entire experience of reality and time and space as you experience it in this life is a transition only when you internalize this will you be able to live up to the demands of surah al-marsh and when the day comes Allah even warns you that not just the reality of time and physical, material reality will alter, 
even relate the nature of relationships will alter. Because on that day, ولا يسأل حميما حميما. The closest of relationships, the most loyal or the most Hamim is someone who you're really close to. The most close of relationships will evaporate. يُبَصَّرُونَهُ يَوَدُّ الْمُجْرِمُ لَوْ يَفْتَدِي مِنْ عَذَابِ يَوْمَ إِذٍ بِبَنِيهِ وَصَاحِبَتِهِ وَأَخِيهِ وَفِصِيلَتِهِ الَّتِي تُؤْوِيهِ وَمَنْ فِي الْأَرْضِ جَمِيعًا ثُمَّ يُنْجِيهِ On that day, you will see each other. يُبَصَّرُونَهُ Meaning you will be able to see each other. And you will recognize each other. But, Caring for one another, even that is going to be subject to the law of God. So only those, in the same way that only those who are saved, are not going to experience Yawm Al-Qiyamah as this long, tortuous wait. But also, only those who are saved, who are going to be able to call upon their loved ones. As to the rest, those who are not saved, they're going to see their mothers, they're going to see their wives, they're going to see their children. And what they're going to feel is not any type of warmth or love, but actual enmity. They will actually want to feed their wife, their mother, their son, their children to hellfire if that will help them escape punishment. Now, there is a very obvious discussion that takes place here. Well, we know a lot of people who are not believers who are very upright human beings who would never say, punish my child to save my, to save my rear end, right? That, or there are a lot of people who would not say, oh, go ahead, punish my mother as long as it's going to save me. That's precisely why what this means is that the nature of relationships will be redefined. It is not that you're going to, for people who, people who are saved are going to feel about loved ones, Perhaps even they're not going to feel any rancor or any bitterness or any jealousy. Or, and so in other words, when it comes to those who are saved, their sense of intimacy is not what the sense of intimacy we feel here on earth. Because here on earth, 
we feel things like jealousy and things like annoyance and things like grievance. But all of that will go away. As to those who are not saved, suddenly their world becomes so lonely and so desperate that there's absolutely no warmth. So although they recognize someone as their child, they don't have these feelings anymore. They recognize someone as their mother, they don't have that fe these feelings anymore. The other meaning of yubassarunahum, which is something that was emphasized in all of the tafsir, is that those who suffered injustice will be able to see and recognize those who inflicted injustice upon them. And they will point the finger at them. And they will demand exaction. Which is going to be one of the harshest things upon those who have to pay the bill. Because in this situation, you don't want people pointing the finger at you and saying, they've done this and done that to me. And if you are smart, you would want to clean your bill before you end up in the situation where people are pointing the finger at me, at you and saying, they've hurt me. I have demands upon them. Notice how, like, when we talk about it with this sense, and you start internalizing this reality, it becomes spooky. Your consciousness starts altering. Not your intellect, your consciousness. It's like, wait, I don't want to be stuck there whether it's 50,000 or 1,000 or, or 100 years, I don't want to be stuck there with all types of people saying, we have demands upon this person or demands upon me. No, you know, I much rather get you all set up, all, all satisfied in this earth because this is a horrible situation to be in. I don't want to be there. If you internalize this and you take it, you, you, you understand what it is, Surat al-Ma'arij will never leave you the same. To even emphasize this, then Allah says, Kalla. No, it's like this is like an absolute assertion. No. Innaha lada nazaatan lishawa tad'u man adbara wa tawalla wa jama'a fa'awa. No, absolutely. What you are going to confront is lada. Lada. Literally, this is 15. 
Lada is literally a fire, flames. But Lada is anything that would make you churn. Churn with accountability, churn from confrontation, churn from, it, it, it is, we we say the the lava that we are most familiar with is fire, but lava could be any type of pressure upon you that is unrelenting. Now again, in traditional tafsir, they tell you that the means it will rip the skin of the limbs. But that's not the only meaning. Meaning it will rip things apart, exposing things, in, in my view, exposing yourself to yourself. It is the ultimate ripper and exposer and tormentor. Really, again, the, the language is amazing. It will it will pursue everyone who turns away, who turned away and ran away. It's like the image, although a lot of the traditional tafsir say that, oh, the hellfire will, you know, everyone that turned away from the Prophet, it will call upon them. But again, the language bears a very a different meaning, it's not a very different meaning, is that as people try turn away and try to pretend that they don't belong there, it will pursue them. It is relentless. The image, there's no escape. There are no excuses. There's, there's nothing you can do to get away. Now, fa'awa, we pause here for a second. This is 18. Because it comes, and I told you that Al-Ma'raj starts out with your relationship to reality and materiality. And then it delivers the first punchline in precisely Jama'af Awa. What was your relationship to materiality? It, it tells us this is, it's horrific. It, it's going to pursue you. There's no escape. But what is the first characteristics of of that person, Jama'a fa'awa, they hoarded. 
not necessarily just hoarded wealth, meaning not necessarily they were rich, but their attitude towards material things was that they amassed and hoarded. But idiomatically, jama'a fa'aw'a means someone who is not necessarily a hoarder, but jama'a fa'aw'a is someone who is cares a lot about what material they 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 collect and gather. Jama'a awa is like someone to say, that's mine. It's mine. No, it's mine. Someone who their money is like, oh no, that's my money. You know this my this is mine. Stay away. I I I'm entitled to this. That's Jama'a awa. So immediately it it affirms it's like again you as as the picture will get will get we're we'll, we'll just building the picture as we go along, but it's like you want to be among those who understands what we're saying about the nature of time and space and 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 understanding that they're not stuck in or they're not wedded to this materiality well the biggest problem is in the jama'a that who thinks in terms of mine 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 okay then in brilliantly and beautifully eloquent way it's like it gets you to this point and then it wants to tell you what is the problem that makes human beings so um, wedded or so um, so many human beings have that precise characteristics of Jama'a Fa'awa because most human beings are like that. Most human beings, if you touch their car, it's my car. You know, it's my furniture, it's my clothes, it's my finances, it's my income. So, in fact, the sad, scary thing is that most of us are Jama'a Fa'awa. We're not, that's not the exception. So what is the problem? Why? Why is that? And that then, Surah Ma'arish takes you like by the hand and says, okay, I'll tell you why. إِنَّ الْإِنسَانَ خُلِقَهُ هَلُوعَ إِذَا مَسَّهُ الشَّرُّ جَزُوعَ وَإِذَا مَسَّهُ الْخَيْرُ مَنُوعَ the problem is that human beings, by their inclinations, by their creation, or by, by their nature, this is on, on 19. Halua, and Halua is 
Um, not halua is not a person who's clinically anxious. That that's not a halua. A halua is a. Um, is a person who idajur qalil al-sabr shadid al-hirs meaning a halua is a person who is is restless gets bored and tired quickly and is not very patient and Shadid al-Hirs, who is not generous. Now, here's the thing. Linguistically, the Hela describes the majority of human beings. The vast majority of human beings are a Halua. The vast majority of human beings get have the level of impatience that would be described as halwa. Have the level of um, impertinence and intemperance. Sorry, intemperance that would be described as halwa. The, the 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 level of um, restlessness that would be described as a halwa. So a halua is a a person who, you know, when when you feel like you when you just get bored and it's like oh I I I need stimulus I I you you play a video game for a little for you know a while and then you get bored with it and then you you're on to the next stimulus you you know you read a little bit and then you're bored with it and it's like okay what's next you um talk to someone and then you know you find the conversation boring because there's not enough gossip that, that's all characteristics of halua where halua when you are you know worried about my, my money, my income, my this, my this, my, you know, well, that's a, all that. So, Allah says, human beings have been created with that level of restlessness. Now, you want to understand that restlessness is that human beings tend to have that problem that they react to hurt, to harm, with anxiety and fear. And they react to the opposite of hurt and harm with, um, how did they uh, this is 21, yeah, begrudging meaning with um, a, a manua is when your first inclination when you get something is you don't want to share it. You, 
you your first inclination is it's for me first I, I want to enjoy it first and then maybe I'll think about if I share so the first inclination is to those that restlessness of the soul is that you are torn between fear and the desire for a sense of security. And you are constantly being pulled by these two emotions of I'm anxious, okay, I feel better. I'm anxious, no, okay, I feel better. That is precisely at the heart of this restlessness. And we'll see what this restlessness does in a second. That, that restlessness at the heart of the human soul is what prevents the human being from higher moral aspirations. and higher spiritual aspirations. They might get the inclination to, you know, I miss God, but you know, I'm tired. I want to sleep. Oh, I miss God, but you know, I'm sort of feeling anxious and or I'm feeling down I want to do something fun that that constant gravitating towards the base self is what prevents the consciousness from elevating to a higher self Okay, now, you want to know what can be the remedy so you are not what can be the remedy so you are not that type of halua human being, that type of restless human being. Illa musallin. So, first, we'll see prayer mentioned at the beginning and at the end. My prayer is mentioned twice. Alladheena hum ala salatihim da'imun. So first it will be da'imun. Then it will, will get yuhafizun. But that imun that they are, they, they understand that their prayer is a visitation with the non-material world. So it, it is, they, pers they are persistent. That imun is not just that you do your prayer regularly, but you are 
purposeful with your prayer. You are deliberate with your prayer. And it's not even concentrating in your prayer, meaning that you are doing it with purpose and deliberation. Okay, so that's one. Prayer. Two. وَالَّذِينَ فِي أَمْوَالِهِمْ حَقٌ مَعْلُومٌ لِلسَّائِلِ وَالْمَحْرُومِ And they, when it comes to their material wealth, Look at the language. Hakun Malum. A specified right. Meaning, it's not something, it's not that they give whenever they feel like it, or they give when it is a luxury or an excess, or when it's be more than they need. They treat giving. To the sa'il, the sa'il is the person who asks for help. Al-mahroom, a person who needs help but doesn't ask. They consider the money that goes to these people a matter of absolute right. So it is not something that they do when it's convenient. So that's two. Now, وَالَّذِينَ يُصَدِّقُونَ بِيَوْمِ الدِّينِ وَالَّذِينَ هُمْ مِنْ عَذَابِ رَبِّهِمْ مُشْفِقُونَ So, then, يُصَدِّقُونَ بِيَوْمِ الدِّينِ And there's a lot of discussion as to why Salah is mentioned first and then spending money and then believing in the hereafter. But the answer to this is that it's yusaddiquna, meaning that they deliberately remember and, in, and encode in themselves the reality of the hereafter. It didn't say yu'minuna biyawmiddi, it didn't say believe in the hereafter. No, yusaddiquna, meaning that they work at saying, at remembering the hereafter all the time. وَالَّذِينَ هُمْ مِنْ عَذَابِ رَبِّهِمْ مُشْفِقُونَ This is 27. Now, and those who realize something about God's punishment, which is explained in 28, إِنَّ عَذَابَ رَبِّهِمْ غَيْرَ مَأْمُونَ that or that they never take God for granted. They never tell you themselves, "Oh, it's okay, I'll be forgiven," or "I've done enough, I'll be forgiven." They, because imagine if you if you went on any bureaucratic issue. I mean, I'll tell you, whenever I have a student, if I say to students, um, you know, I might allow students 
who can show me that they deserve to do so to write an, an extra, a paper for extra credit in my class. The thing that irritates the heck out of me if a student comes and talks to me as if they're entitled to that permission. And when a student comes and talks to me and sort of like as if it's taken for granted, I'm going to give them permission, I say I'll never give them permission. Just because they talk to me as if I'm going to give them permission. Like, who, who are you? Who do you think you are? So I always say, no. Even if I believe the student could do, should write the, the thing for extra credit. Just because of the attitude. Imagine if you stepped in the courtroom and, you know, at the beginning of the trial, you basically started joking with the judge about how you have a right to get off. It's the height of insanity. But that's what we do with God all the time. And that's why it is so offensive. Because, in fact, that's what we do with God all the time. We, we do things that we know are clearly is sin, but we all the time just assume, oh, of course he's going to forgive. Of course God is going to forgive. So, so, as we said, prayer, the, the, your money, it's amazing. I mean, with how much the Quran focuses on the issue of materiality, um, working hard to internalize belief in the final day never taking God for granted and understanding that you're not entitled to forgiveness. So these are four. وَالَّذِينَ هُمْ لِفُرُوجِهِمْ حَافِظُونَ إِلَّا عَلَىٰ أَزْوَاجِهِمْ أَوْ مَا مَلَكَتْ أَيْمَانُونَ فَإِنَّهُمْ غَيْرُ مَلُومِينَ And they do not have sexual relations outside their spouses or what their right hands possess. Um, we, we are not going to get into the issue of slavery because it comes in Surah Al-Mu'minun um, and I'll, I'll reserve it for Surah Al-Mu'minun or um, Surah Al-Baqarah it also comes there. But I'll just say this. There is a debate in the Islamic tradition. The, the only legally, in terms of what was, according to Sharia, the only source of slavery, if, if, if abducting people and selling them to slavery is clearly haram, and as the Prophet said, anyone that buys such a person is cursed. The only source of slavery that was kept was slavery through war, meaning that if there is a war and there are 
and this was the old system that the entire world worked according to, is that there are prisoners of war. The prisoners of war are either ransomed. If they're not ransomed, then they are sold into slavery. This is, of course, on the principle of reciprocity. So if the enemy does this to Muslims, then Muslims can reciprocate. Now, but there is a debate as to even as to those prisoners of war, where their sexual relations are permissible with these, if you buy a slave who was a prisoner of war, uh, without marital contract or not. And in my opinion, the correct view and the view that is 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 that of course it required a marital contract and the biggest proof of that is that even those who don't support the marital contract perspective if you read this area is gender neutral it means it on its face it's gender neutral if you're not going to read a marriage contract into the requirement then that means if you have a female slave you can have sex with them and if you have a male slave, you can have sex with them, whether you're a man or a woman. Now, those who don't believe in marital contract, once you tell them that, say, no, 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 no. A woman can't have sex with male slaves, and a man can't have sex with a man, even though they're a slave. And then you say, well, where do you get that from? If, if the language is gender neutral. And then they, you know, they do all types of cartwheels to try to justify their positions. The, the truth of the matter is, is that contrary to what some people these days have tried to argue, I don't know what, what their problem is, but this issue has been researched tons of times. I mean, it's been researched since now for over a hundred years. You, you couldn't just rape your slave. You had to have a marriage contract. The only issue about a slave is that they were not part of the polygamy rule. And if the slave becomes pregnant, if it's a woman, then the fact that the slave became pregnant, then that means that slave has to be freed. Pregnancy meant the slave earned their freedom because it was inconceivable that that would be the child of your mother and she's still a slave. Um, anyway, but let, let's move on. So as we said then, so the issue of sexual control that means the, the fornication and adultery. Okay. So I've lost count. Where, where were we again? So first is prayer. Then the money. Then believing in the final day. Then, the, or, or sorry, uh, internalizing the final day and then not taking God for granted, then 
sexual morality, right? So that's five. Then six, the amanatim wahdim raun. An oath, a contract, a promise. This is number, uh, ayah number 32. Is secret. If you don't know how to keep your promises, if you do not know how to honor the trust, Allah is giving you a moral code that will allow you to have what we talked about at the beginning of Surah Al-Maj. Seven. وَالَّذِينَ هُمْ بِشَهَادَاتِهِمْ قَائِمُونَ And those who honor their witness or their testimony, meaning you witness something and you're called upon to testify, you do it honestly. There's no, well, is it in my best interest? Well, maybe I'm going to get hurt. This is, is a position in which you must testify to the truth. But as Imam al-Ghazali said, doesn't just mean that you testify in court. It means you testify as the truth as to anything. So if your friend is cheating on his wife and the wife comes to you and says, is my husband cheating? You can't cover for your friend. That's what bearing witness means. It means that you can't see injustice and keep silent. You can't see people being oppressed and abused and pretend that you don't see anything. You can't see a tyrant and say, oh, well, maybe they're not a tyrant. Maybe they're good for the country. Like modern-day pharaohs, you, you know, so many Muslims, so many Muslims, they come to a tyrant like the one in Saudi Arabia, they come to a tyrant like the one in Emirat, they come to the tyrant like the one in Egypt, they come to a tyrant like the one in Syria, they come to a tyrant like Haftar in Libya, they, and they say, well, you know, but they're doing good things for the country. Forget it. I'm serious. Forget it. There's nothing that, nothing will come out of it. Khalas. It's over. Am I seriously saying that people who support tyrants or support injustice, there's no point to their prayer? Yes, that's what I'm saying. There's no point to their prayer. There's no point to their fasting. There's no point to their Islam. You can't, you can't bear witness to injustice. You can't. 
as a Muslim, you are bound to bear witness for justice. As a Muslim, you are bound to the obligation of to know to know what justice is. That's the moral code that is required. And then it circles back to prayer and tells you, so now it comes back again and says you start with prayer because prayer is the heart of the matter. But your prayer has to make you understand the proper relationship to money. Your prayer has to make you understand the proper relationship to sexual promiscuity. Your prayer has to make you understand the proper relationship to taking for God for granted. Your prayer has to make you understand the proper relationship when it comes to keeping your word and honoring trusts and oaths. Your prayer has to make you understand what it means to bear witness to truth. And if it doesn't, then you have no prayer. Now, look at this amazing moral code given to you by Surah Al-Ma'arish. A complete moral code if you want to understand what it means for your consciousness, consciousness to internalize the perception of Allah and accountability and Allah's justice. And if you want to avoid a situation of the absolute agony of standing to be judged when you don't know what is going to happen to you. Then it comes to something that so many commentators, unfortunately, do not pick up on. Comes at this point, it says, فَمَالِ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا قِبَلَكَ مُهْطَعِينَ عَنِ الْيَمِينِ وَعَنِ الشَّمَالِ عِزِينَ أَيَطْمَعُ كُلُّ إِمْرِئٍ مِنْهُمْ أَيْ يُدْخَلَ so what these here from 36 so how is it that those who disbelieve scramble towards thee from the right and from the left in droves then you stop there and say, wait, 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 wait. How is it that those who disbelieve scramble around the Prophet ﷺ in the right and left in droves? What is that talking about? Well, all traditional tafsir tell you 
Well, you know, the Prophet used to, when he would sit in Mecca and he would preach and then uh, all the kuffar would come and they would form little circles, you know, circles of friends and to the right and left and mock him. And in fact, and they, I will cite often a tradition attributed to the Prophet where he comes out uh, to, when he get, he comes out to, to talk to um, um, Muslims in Medina. This was in Medina. And then he sees them like standing in little groups scattered. And he says, Why are you all standing scattered like this? Meaning, come close, stand together, don't, don't stand in little cliques. Okay, so, but still, why would the Quran say, why is it that the disbelievers, and notice, it's like the, the, the form grammatically is, says, so how is it that those who disbelieve scramble toward you? So, in an in a inquisitive form. So how is it? So what, it still doesn't make sense, right? They scramble towards you to the left and right. Well, if it wants to say that they mock you, it's an odd way of saying it. The, the puzzle is easily solved when you pay attention to the language. What is the condition of those who are rejecting the Prophet, the, the message of the Prophet It is not a literal exp expression. Their condition is that confronted with the truth, confronted with the message of the Prophet, confronted with this moral code, confronted with this, this reality of their accountability and of the demand towards material things, towards money, the demand towards sexual things, the demand towards covenants and trust and justice, the demand of uprightness, is that they are muhta'in, meaning that they first come to you, they, they, they come in droves saying, okay, okay, let's listen to what you, you have to say. But once they hear it, that, that remarkable expression, Once they hear it, it's like they disperse to the right and left, running away, because their strength comes from the fact that 
they conform to their social circles. So in other words, it's like it's the picture it draws is amazing. The picture it draws is like these people are like ch chatter. What is that expression? Chatter bugs. Ch chitter chatter. Ch chatter box. Yeah, like the chatter box. Box. Okay. Blah blah. You know they they talk 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 talk. They but they're all basically they're all influencing each other. It's like you know. Uh, Oh, he doesn't make any sense, but it's because, only because they are backing up each other, bolstering each other in, in their social circles. But they have no moral truth to respond with. So the, the image it draws is amazing. It's like it, they, they, they come... And they're going to confront. It's like, we're going to, yeah, 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 t you know, t tell us, what, what is that you're saying? They're going to confront. But then once they hear the, the ethical discourse, they go into their little social circles to backbite and to basically, you know, chitter-chatter and, and to sit there in the meme and ghaiba to, to backbite. backbite and speak behind the prophet's back because they don't have the moral backbone. They don't have a truth to respond with. It couldn't have, it's amazing. I think I said that the prophet came out and saw his, his companions uh, standing around in circles scattered and he said, uh, what he said was, Mali arakum izin, not Mali arakum muhtain. I think I misspoke, but it's many arakumaizin, which is you know why why are you standing uh, separated from one another instead of standing together? Anyway, it doesn't change uh, anything. But uh, okay, so we said that this this very important point that. The surah clearly addresses the restlessness, the the uh, the anxiety and the restlessness that is the core of human personality. But in this amazingly beautiful and eloquent way, that those who rush to confront the Prophet um, have no ethical core and so when they 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 confront what the Prophet is saying they disperse to the right and left relying on their own little um, uh, support groups or their own little social circles to perpetuate their backbiting, their, you know, their, their, their vain talk. I mean, basically continuing on to, to speak in, in vain terms, but without any moral purpose or moral code. 
And then at this point, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminds human beings that of, of what the Quran always does. And that is to, to always take you back to the Quran of creation and to say, here, you know what we've created you out of. Now, whether we've created you out of dust or, or mud or, or we've created you from very insignificant small things like uh, seminal fluid and, and the like, that if you just reflect on the fact that you appear to come out of virtually nothing into the entire edifice that constitutes you as you go on in life and you come to take it so seriously and believe that it is the end all uh, of everything فَلَا أُقْسِمُ بِرَبِّ الْمَشَارِقِ وَالْمَغَارِبِ إِنَّا لَقَادِرُونَ This is the, the oath that Allah takes in 39 and 40. So I swear by the Lord of Easts and West that we are able. Now, the, the people who um, write about science on the Quran, I'm, I, I'm not equipped to, to elaborate upon this point, but apparently... Um, it is there is something of a scientific sci scientific um, it's scientifically amazing thing in the fact that the at the when the Quran when Allah swears by the wests and easts and I don't quite remember the, the argument but apparently like that the in in certain seasons, it has to do with, in certain seasons, the, the, the relationship of the sun to the equator is, is at a set point in the east and west. And in other seasons, the, there are in fact easts and many easts and many wests because of the way that the earth tilts in relation to the sun. So if you know if um, if you're interested in this, uh, look it up in, in books that talk about science and science on the Quran. But it, it's um, I don't even re recall it well enough to explain it. But okay, so Allah that oath precedes something that, again, it's an obvious fact, but a fact that we don't uh, ponder. That if Allah would have wished this entire human creation, whether whether the, the entire creation of disbelievers or doubters can be easily replaced, or the entire human creation uh, 
can be easily replaced. That this is not an issue for God. It is but, as Allah says elsewhere in the Quran, that we are but just one of Allah's many creations uh, in the universe. فَذَرْهُمْ يَخُودُوا وَيَلْعَبُوا حَتَّى يَلْقَوْا يَوْمَهُمُ الَّذِي كَانُوا يُوْعَدُونَ يَوْمَ يَخْرُجُونَ مِنَ الْأَجْدَاثِ سِرَاعًا كَأَنَّهُمْ إِلَى نُصُبٍ يُوْفِضُونَ خَاشِعَةً أَبْصَارُهُمْ تَرْهَقُهُمْ زِلَّةً ذَلِكَ الْيَوْمُ الَّذِي كَانُوا يُوْعَدُونَ So, let them fool around. Again, now speaking to the Prophet again, let them fool around because from that perspective that we were talking about, you, if you live life within the ethical code that you find in Surat Al-Ma'arish, then you live life with a purpose, you are not you are not plagued by the restlessness that is the earmark of humanity and more than that you start elevating to the most remarkable thing and that is you start elevating to the God of elevations to Rabbul Ma'arish you start ascending to the God of the ascending ways. And when you do so, your attitude towards time and space and the very idea of accountability and the very idea of the year after starts changing dramatically and you are no longer then just playing around as Allah as the Quran puts it that you're not just fooling around on this earth but you're living purposefully and meaningfully until they will they will fool around and play around until they will confront the reality that Allah is promising them. It's inevitable. And when they do, that day, يَخْرُجُونَ مِنَ الْأَجْدَاسِ سُرَاعًا كَأَنَّهُمْ إِلَىٰ نُصُبٍ يُوْفَضُونَ So, Al-Ajdath is the burial sites, grave sites, or wherever human beings are, are as, as dead corpses are. So, they will emerge from these sites, in huge numbers. Forty-three, the study Quran says, they when they come forth from their graves, hastening as if racing to a goal. Very literal. Okay. Al-Nusub are designated points that become like your target points. In traditional commentary, they tell you that, well, a Muslim could also be the idols that they used to worship um, so that 
they will they're, they're, the idols that they used to worship will be there and they will be coming out of their graves and you know heading directly to these idols there's nothing that justifies that that tafsir that i i mean this tafsir is speculative and doesn't even make much sense but rather the image that is clear is that would if you are an outside observer and you are seeing all these human beings emerge out of death out of the, the state of death they are moving with direction the way that big swarms move and the direction its meeting points they're they're they are flocking in huge numbers but they are flying or moving to specified muscle to specified meaning points but the thing is is that as they're heading to these designated points what the image drawn clearly conveys if they have no choice and they know they have no choice and I at this point I should say we because it's we who are going to be in this situation not anyone else and as we are heading to these points those who are in trouble their eyes well I suspect most human beings even because it's going to be terrifying their eyes are cast down but tarhaqum means that they will feel abased they will feel burdened by feeling lowly which would seem to indicate that these are the people who are in trouble that as they're heading to the designated points it's like they're saying oh my god it turned out to be true we're heading to our accountability so the thing that used to be such a remote reality nearly an inconceivable reality in this image that surat al-ma'arij leaves you with it's a very vivid image that you can actually visualize it and you can see it as a reality it's like uh i'm gonna be flying with my eyes cast down as i'm feeling as it's dawning on me oh my god it turned out to be right there's going to be accountability you know holy whatever um this is what you have been this is what you were promised and that you will confront so surat al-ma'arij the the sufi astafasir are absolutely right in their belief when you read in a lot of the sufi literature that no one can read surah no one can understand or internalize surat al-ma'arif without starting their journey i completely understand what they're saying what what 
what they're what they I think were capturing is that Surat and Maharaj is telling you this reality you're in is such a limited part of the picture. Not even your experience of time and space is real. Allah knows, because Allah is talking to Muslims who are now at that point where their, their, their persecution is going to escalate and they're going to go through very hard times. I know that as you suffer, there are those of you that say, those who don't believe and come and tell you, where's that final day? Well, if it's real, make it happen. I know that even though those of you who do believe, you will be thinking, well, you know, when is that final day? Is it going to happen a year from now, 10 years from now, 100 years from now, 1,000 years from now? But even more importantly, Allah knows that there are those who are going to say as you suffer persecution, when is going to be justice? And that's the issue that is relevant for Muslims forever. When is, it going to, when is there going to be justice? God, it looks like the unjust just keep going on and on. But these types of questions emerge from the restlessness of your soul. These types of questions emerge because you are so attached to your material reality, you don't understand that what you perceive to be a very long time is actually could be a split second. What you see as a long history is in fact nothing at all. And that accountability is as real as that person standing with a gun to your head saying, if you touch this money, I'm going to shoot you. It is there. But the reason you don't have this is because of your relationship to material reality and especially to possessions. And if you want to transform, if you want to ascend, if you want to start experiencing the truth of the divine in the sense of ma'arish, where here's the moral code, purposeful, determined, determined prayer, not just prayer as, as a performance of duty. So I don't forget anything. Your relationship to money, what you give, you have to give as a matter of entitlement to those who need the money, not as a matter of generosity. If you think that you're being generous when I give, then no, forget it. You have to give 
and nearly say, I'm grateful that you're taking from me. You have to internalize belief in the hereafter. You have to never take God for granted. You have to be diligent about sexual honor or why? Because sexual indulgence is among the things that weakens your ascending to the realm of the divine. If you're a sexually indulgent person, it retards you. But in addition to that, you have to be a person who honors your word, who honors their word, honors their oath, honors their covenant. If you promise, you keep your promise. You have to be a person who is upright when it comes to testifying to the truth, which necessarily, as Ghazali says, means testifying to justice. And it circles back and says, you have to pay attention to how well you perform your prayers. <clears throat> now, if you do that, you will be a people with a moral and ethical backbone. You will live life purposefully, and you have the chance of ascending to Allah Dhul-Ma'arish. If you don't, you'll be like those who float around in social circles. They get their sense of meaning and purpose from their little social circles. And they scatter to the right and left without aim, without purpose. And when it comes to when it matters, these same people will flock to their point of destination, broken and terrified, to stand, perhaps, for 50,000 years on the Day of Judgment, while those of you who abided by the moral code, you'd be in a very different situation. Surat al-Ma'arish came as a revolution in the psyche of Muslims. It was, you have so many traditions about how often they would recite Surah Al-Ma'arij in prayer, about the Qur'an and their obsession with Surah Al-Ma'arij in Medina, later on when they, after the migration, you, it, it just, it, it's all, you find it in so many different aspects of Islamic civilization. Unfortunately, as the centuries passed, and what set in is this tafsir method of, you know, ayah by ayah by ayah, the 
the the the transformative spirit was um, allowed to wither away, and it became something that Muslims lost touch with. And alhamdulillah, this is Surah Al-Marsh. Assalamu alaikum, Rahim. So let's get started on the q and um, You know, this, this Surah, I, I, I think that because we have covered such a critical mass of Surahs now, like, it's incredible to imagine yourself in the shoes of the early Muslims, like receiving all of these things. Like we now go, you know, and receive things in a different order than they receive them. But to go back and kind of think about where were they in, in the process of things? What were they encountering? You know, what um, what was the message that they are receiving? And if this was like right after Isra, as you said, Isra was like the equivalent of the Muslim Ten Commandments, right? And then again, another set of messages. It just, you know, and every single surah is, is just jam-packed with, you know, moral lessons and things like that. Like how how did, all of that, I mean, coalesce, how did they keep it all, you know, like, like for us going through it, it's like how, you know, I, we haven't had the time to really fully process, you know, and even think about like, you know, the order in which these things came and remembering like, what was the moral lesson of each surah. But that was a lot for, you know, how, how did they? Well, uh, I mean, that's, that's a good question. They, um, In the Mecca period, um, the, well, first you understand why um, they went through this process of natural screening because, I mean, the, the persecution, it tests the metal people. Nothing tests the mineral people like fear. Uh, nothing tests the mineral people more than when you stick to a message at a time when you know that you could lose your, your life, you could lose your loved ones, you could be tortured, you could... So it, it really kept the most committed and the most dedicated uh, and and on top of it, then we, as I've said before, that the, the Isra itself got rid of a lot of the fluff. That's okay. Then they, we, we know that they met every night. And they met every night and they, uh, especially in... We don't know about um, the Dohr um, and Asr prayers, but they met every night for Maghrib and Aisha, and there is a lot of evidence that they that they would pray Fajr together as well, and that they effectively we we often talk about the 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 companions and the prophet meeting together we know that they were met together met together every day but a lot of the ahadith that 
reached us, or the, a lot of the hadith that we teach our children, unfortunately give the impression that um, a lot of them come from the Medina period. I mean, that's one thing. But a lot of them give the impression that basically what the, the, the Prophet would sit with them and do is um, talk about a bunch of laws. Uh, that completely misses the picture because the the core the core group were the people in Mecca. What they met every night and what they studied were to this constant uh, well memorizing the Quran. That's one, but two. There is so. There's plenty of evidence that they would talk about, as you know, we have many hadith from the companions that say that they would internalize the lessons, that they would, and they would talk about how they're internalizing the lessons, and so it was it was not you know something that they did once a week or you know. It's it, they were they were in this every single night. Everything else in their life took second place. Their their business, their work, their um, and it is this core group that then after the Hijrah educated others in Islam. Now, once we get in Medina, the 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 it's very interesting because you had the Qurra who lived in, in right in the Prophet's mosque or around the Prophet's mosque and they would meet with the Prophet every single day. And the close companions to the Prophet who were also meeting with the Prophet every single day in, in the mosque and that studious process and these people became the educators of others in Islam but uh, the it is the strength of that core group I mean it reminds me a lot uh, of what some of the authorities we then said you know it's it's a two percent mm -hmm. and I think he is absolutely right because when he you look at the Muslim Ummah we Muslims often talk about the companions of the Prophet about as if they were all equal, but they weren't all equal. There's a huge difference between the companions that converted in Mecca and were educated in over this course of persecution and hardship and were receiving the Quran bit by bit early on was daily, nightly lessons with the Prophet and companions that came late, so for instance, after the conquering of Mecca. There's a huge difference. And I think that it is, for obvious sectarian reasons, um, you know, the, especially the Sunni scholars try to say, oh, all the companions are the same, you know, don't, 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 Make it, but it, no. It, it's when it comes to understanding the the 
when we want to reclaim the ethical message of Islam, what it was about, then it is very important that we we be very honest about that tradition and um, you know where the heart of the tradition is. And so, what I'll also say is that a lot of the lessons were cumulative. So, the 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 ethical code that we talk about, like in Surah Al-Ma'arij, uh, so, sorry, in Surah Al-Isra, for instance, when you compare it to Surah Al-Ma'arij, you find that it is nearly identical. So it is, it is like a pro, you know, an educational process of layering. It's like when you, when you're studying a subject and you start out with the basics and then you're, you're adding a little bit, you're adding a little bit, you're adding a little bit. And then when you come by the end of the semester and you look at the stuff that you studied at the very beginning, you realize, oh, you know, what I studied at the very beginning, it was just the, 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 the heart of the matter, but it's, it seems like very simple compared to what you've learned later on. So it was really a morally cumulative lesson, building upon, you know, piece by piece. It's like layering it on top of one another. Um, the the most the, the thing about if if you if you internalize the Quran or if you go in a journey with the Quran, what you what you. It, the Quran very much is like, um, um, or if you have a good teacher with, with the Quran, is that they, it, it is like um, a, a moral journey. It's like, you know, it, it starts out with the, some profound but basic ideas in, uh, or you know, uh, or you know, and then, or noon or 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 and but then each lesson it's really layering upon a further step in the theme, a further step in the theme. The the reason for our modern mind it is it is so difficult, is because we. Uh, we've we've um, compartmentalized our lives. We, you know, um, our work has nothing to do with spiritual talk. And um, if we are able to dedicate, you know, it's something for a. a, a moral religious education once a week we consider it like a big thing uh, well I mean yeah once a week is helpful it's better than nothing but it's obviously not going to produce the type of transformative pro, uh, education that we're talking about and what even adds to worse to that is that when we come to teaching our children our teachers are woefully 
uh, unqualified. So we're not managing to, you know, it's like children are the most receptive. This is the point where you can really teach children. But what is the value of having Islamic schools if these Islamic schools are equipped with uh, people who are unqualified? I mean, before you have Islamic schools, it trained the educators so that they can actually teach the children something worthwhile. But, you know, we rush to build Islamic schools, Islamic schools, Islamic schools, and, and no one seems to care what the, what the quality of these teachers are. Um, you know, it's not a matter of just uh, knowing how to read the Quran. And it, it's, it's, uh, and, and this is what I'm, I'm trying to demonstrate of what it means to actually understand the Quran. You know, we've grown so accustomed and, and so, like, I think grateful for this methodology because it's like trying to understand what, what, how they received it. But it also makes me wonder, like, why, why is it, and, and maybe we don't want to get into this right now, but why was the Quran then not organized by order of revelation so we could understand, like, you know, that whole entire lesson and message? Because what a lot of people don't is that, um, it, it, um, the, 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 the way the Quran is organized is not a problem when you have strong educational institutions. In, in the old system, it, it was not, no one thought that people can just educate themselves. And the idea that we have in the modern age where people tell you, oh, just read the Quran and just every Muslim is qualified to, to, to educate themselves with the Quran. It is completely a modern invention. And it, the, the way it was that any family that wanted to bring up their children as literate children would hire Quran teachers for their children. And the society valued Quran teachers. Uh, they were the biggest thing. And this, by the way, continued even till, till the dawn of the colonial age. Um, you know, Quran teachers were, were a very big deal. And, and you continue to learn the Quran. I mean, imagine that you would, you would encounter the Quran first when you are five or six year old, but then you would continue studying the Quran. And, and even though you might, you know, study the Quran from the time you're five to six years old till the time you are 16, you are still considered not qualified to say anything about the Quran. Your real graduate level education on the Quran would start at, you know, when you are beyond that, you know, 18, 19 years old. And it, the idea that people would just read the Quran and pontificate, shoot from the hip, 
was completely absent for centuries in the Islamic civilization. It it didn't. It was it was completely alien, and unfortunately, I mean, because um, especially Islamic activists um, from you know movements like the Muslim Brotherhood and so on, they wanted to overcome the stag the 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 tyranny of um, the clergy the the shiuch and the mullahs and the ayatullahs and so on who were bought by the state and the state itself was bought by colonial powers so the you know the state is controlled by colonial powers and then the state controls the clergy and the ayatullahs and the mullahs and so on so islamic activists like the muslim brotherhood went to an egalitarian route in saying well, you know, we don't need those shiuch, just anyone can read the Quran and interpret. While they will end well-intentioned, but what they unintentionally did is that they complete, completely flattened and impoverished the Quranic discourse. Because people who had no clue how to even even make any headway in the Quran where, 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 you know, spewing off whatever they wanted to spew off. And the, the Quran is, 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 um, is too rich for that. I mean, it's just too rich for that. Thank you. Um, what is the thicker for this? It's an entire surah. Entire surah. Okay. Do you want to start over? Um, thank you so much, Sheikh. I don't even know where to begin. I mean, that was so incredible. Um, but I guess a point of elaboration that I think would be really, really helpful. You know, we already have um, the meaning of prayer video, which, you know, you, you've done and we have on our um, Sully Institute channel. Um, but I wanted to go back again to, you know, the first remedy of restlessness, which you discussed. Salah, and specifically understanding that prayer is a visitation with the non-material world. And mm -hmm. I mean, this immediately just resonated with me and I'm sure everyone else in this room and who's watching because it puts something so tangible behind the meaning of prayer that we can all commit to. And I think every one of those um, seven steps, I believe it was, you know, have more depth to it that we can mm -hmm. all understand. So I, I just kind of want to first focus on the first one and, you know, see if there's more you can say on that because... <laughs> Just speaking for myself, I mean, I can't even count the amount of times that I've seeked relief from, you know, my anxiety if it comes to, like, my future and future security and stability by just, you know, putting my efforts into just more material things, which I think this surah teaches is the absolute wrong approach because, as we learn, you know, this time, this space is all relative. But for somehow for myself, you know, if I'm in the state of anxiety and re restlessness, I just think, okay, I just, you know, you know, work harder, do something else, you know, this random thing just for myself so I, I get more secure. But, you know, the answer is kind of, at least my understanding is detaching for this material, you know, obsession. So I was just wondering, is there more that you can add to at least just even that first step in understanding what it means exactly to visit well, the non-material? In, in Salah... Um, 
Salah really begins from the the if the first thing for for prayer to be effective in in is to give Salah its time. Because Salah really begins from the point that you get up and you say I intend to pray and so you do your you do wudu and wudu in itself as you do wudu you should imagine that you're cleansing away sins and the water the purifying element of water um, so you you're getting you know you're putting yourself in in the zone so to speak from the point that you're doing wudu and if you if prayer is done while you're rushed um, it's not going to it it's always going to be if you're squeezing prayer in between things so to the extent possible prayer should be given its time it's it's adequate time um, and that's also why they say that you know it's highly recommended that you you, you to the extent possible that uh, until you you get that power of mind over matter that you, you when you pray um, it, you are not thinking of a meal you're not thinking of the conversation that you need to have you're not thinking so you, you try to you try to do prayer where and the first thing about prayer is that the heart and core of salah is that you are telling Allah I am communing with you to tell you that whatever you will for me I accept and give me the wisdom to bear patiently what you will for me and to understand it and to welcome it and, and that is the, the 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 beginning of everything is that when you, the minute you say Allahu Akbar um, is that Allah what I know that this uh, you are you determine everything and there is nothing as the, the Quran says that there is nothing that can hurt me unless you allow it to hurt me and nothing that can benefit me unless you allow it to benefit me and I am coming to you embracing completely that my entire fate is in your hands and then the the next step is that my entire fate is in your hands and that I have no better guide as to how to manage my affairs in this world than you so please guide me and as you are you know reading the Fatha as you're reading the Surah as you're doing you're doing your Rukua, you're doing your Sujood, you're doing your Salat al you're doing what 
that is the, the, the core thing that you constantly remind yourself of, is that Allah's will is supreme, and I happily accept it, and I need Allah's guidance to manage my affairs in this world. And so that is why that when, when the closer you are able to achieve this meaning in Salah, the more Salah is a communion, so you actually, when you, like the, the, the sense you get is, 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 is of relief by the time it's as if you've taken a break from the world. And um, the thing, the, the, the biggest, um, you know, people often, I, I'm like, I, I'm surprised, like when I started noticing with a lot of people that they don't give Salah its time. You know, they, they, it's not necessarily that they even pray late, or they might. A lot of people will just, you know, pray at the last minute. But they, um, they'll squeeze Salah in. And then they'll complain, well, I, I don't feel the, the impact of Salah. Well, you're not going to feel the impact if it's squeezed in. It, it has to take its time. And it, it, and you, it's like as the Prophet said, that when you pray, you visualize yourself in whatever imagery you're able to draw in your mind that you're standing literally before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It is as if Allah is standing right there in front of you. Um, and it's not as if because Allah is standing there. You know, not just in front of you, but behind you, in front of you, next to you. Um, the minute you say Allahu Akbar, you're in Allah's presence completely and fully. And if you imagine how many times we say Allahu Akbar and enter prayer, but we don't give Allah Allah's due. And that has a cumulative negative effect. Because it's impolite. It's rude. Um, if you stand in, at, you know, between Allah's hand, give Allah, you know, at least the reverence and respect that, you know, that's what you one should strive. And if one keeps reminding themselves of that, it will bear fruit. It will have an effect. It's just that people forget. But if, if one is determined and keeps, you know, whatever one needs to do to remind, to remember that, you know, whether it's, you know, keeping a log or, or whatever, um, uh, um, it, um, it, it, it will make a difference. In verse 4, you said uh, Rauh, but in the, in the Mus'haf it's um, Ruh. 
And I was wondering if, if this is a different difference in Qur'a or if it's just, and if it is a difference in Qur'a, what do the two differences, what does the difference imply? Um, the yeah, no, this is, um, she was asking that, And here in the in Surah Maharaj is a ruh, But when we, you can say a ruh or you can say a rawh. And that's just a difference in pronunciation um, that had, has to do with the. Lahja, the the tongue of different Arab tribes that would pronounce the word, but there's no difference in in meaning. And the other question that I had was in regards to um, verse 29 and 30 and 31. Does does the language support um, not just it referring to sex, but also including modesty in general or is this specifically only commenting on on sexual behavior uh, uh, the, the question is uh, is it referring to modesty or just or specifically to sexual behavior well the the Arabic said al faruj or faraj is the private part and to guard their private part. Now, now, in a lot of the in, in law books, they'll tell you, you know, they'll go into discussions. Well, um, uh, guard your guard their private parts, so that the except that the 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 proper outlet is with wives um, or with spouses rather. Um, as well as your spouse. So, but guard the private parts includes all types of things that would that have to do with sexual desire. Um, you know, it it, it doesn't it, here the mo- it's not talking about modesty as in form of like what you wear, uh, but it it is. If if someone, for instance, um, you know, intentionally tries to cause I don't know cause arousal, or if someone is, um, you know, do what a lot of the law books say like Abdul Basar, like to to not look at things that cause arousal, that would be covered. Uh, because anything that has to do with, you know, improper sexual arousal, um, it would be covered by this. Um, in a, a related question, um, can you explain a little more uh, what you mean by sexual indulgence? What context is it? Also, sexual indulgence inside of marriage. 
I think I said sexual indulgence just because I was looking, um, you know, I didn't want, I was looking for a word. I, I, I don't just want to say fornication and adultery because it it's not just, you know, technical fornication and adultery. It's guarding your your private parts, <laughs> which, which means that you, you're not, um uh you're not you know uh, committing haram things um so anyway so what what is sexual indulgence um what what here it, it, i think what here it's specifically talking about is Sexual, where does the sexual arousal head to, or direct, or, or where does it go? So if, if it, it, it's saying that the proper outlet for sex is marriage, is, an, is a spouse. But now, in... You know things like um, uh, things like masturbation is debated in so a lot of depending on the schools of thought. You know there there are those scholars that say masturbation is haram, uh, um, and those who say no, it's halal. Um, but but that's I mean that gets us into questions of and you know masturbation is uh, masturbation for people who are not married as opposed to masturbation for people who are married uh and things like that and i don't know if that's what the question is getting at but um i i have a feeling like the question is getting at something but it's it's well, I, I mean, maybe I uh, question is maybe are there any limits in within the context of marriage? Within marriage, listen. I mean, within a marriage, as long as there is free consent, the the limits is our coercion. Um, as the the the, I mean it. The um, Muslim, I mean, within a marriage, uh, spouses are encouraged to have as much fun as they can. Um, and I don't know um, if the person asking the question knows this, but you know, there, there, this is something famous about the Islamic tradition is that. There are very famous jurors who wrote very well-known sex manuals that are supposed to be things that are far more explicit than the Kama Sutra, for instance. That are supposed to be read or studied, maybe, by married couple so that they can um, have a very fulfilling sexual life. Um, 
so within the marriage, it, it, the, it, the part where you really start getting into, I mean, if anything is coercive, that's a problem. But, um, you know, the, this is this is again. There used to be in in the classical age that people who were getting ready to get married, they could actually take like um, they could actually read take a class where they read these books. Was if if it's a woman, they read it was a woman teacher. If it's a man, they read it was a male teacher so that they know what to do after marriage and um when i've read some of these manuals they, they really surprise me as to uh how explicit they are and you know they, they're pretty radical <laughs> i don't know okay that. well let me let me actually <laughs> take this opportunity to ask a question yeah. related um, that you received because you know we get so many emails and questions and things like that yeah, so and we always say there's no embarrassment in a religion so <laughs> um, But you got the question uh, uh -oh. uh, About anal sex for marriage within a marriage uh. If you don't want to answer it's okay. We can Because that's not part of this. Well, I guess it is part of this story No, I, I, I don't want to answer right now. Okay. I mean we, we can we can have <laughs> We can have this, a a um, but let me the part that I will answer is I I know from experience uh, with a lot of young people that anal sex often when it comes to the women it's coercive um, and that is clearly haram even pressuring the woman into it is clearly haram. Uh, we could have a s separate session where maybe we can have like a Q&A mm -hmm. and, um, and then I can answer, you know, all types of fiqh questions and we get into schools of thought and stuff like that. Okay, um, so here's another question. Um, Sort of related. So, Salaamu Alaikum. Could it be that Mamalikit Ayman in Ayah 30 not refer to slaves at all, at least in this surah, and just refer to spouses? If I remember correctly, previously you have interpreted the phrase as those you are, those who you are responsible for looking after or taking yeah, care yeah. of, if I understood correctly, which could include spouses. Yeah, the, um, I, I think that Ma'amalakat Aymanukum, I mean, but th this is, I, I didn't want to get into this because it, it's, a, it's a larger uh, topic. Um, um, marriage, as we know it in the modern age, where you go and you get, you know, you register your marriage and there's a civil record or there's some record of the marriage and, and, and so on. Um, it, it, it's, that's a very modern phenomenon. Um, um, in, in 
the pre-modern world, um, things were not so organized. And so there were a lot of relationships in which people could not prove that they are married. Um, they, they've lived together for many years uh, and they say they were married by such and such person in such and such tribe, but they're unable to produce their witnesses there. And there is a lot that developed about um, these and and besides, so first, there's a lot that developed about where people fail to write either a written contract or even have a uh, produce the person who conducted the marriage, if there was a person or the witnesses the to the marriage. The other thing is that. The, in the medieval world, not just in the Islamic world, but it was quite, there were a whole institution of people promised in marriage where they, the, the, there's a, a, a betrothal uh, uh, of, and that these institutions themselves were often described as the right hands, what your right hands possessed. Uh, so where they're, you know, whether they involved financial responsibility or not, but it was a form of what, a form of it survives till the modern age where some people do a kadbiktab, but they're sort of married and they're not married. They do kadbiktab, but they don't have a dukhla. They, they don't consummate. Now, so if these people end up being together sexually, well, they're married. They're, they, they, they have a, a binding agreement. And I believe that Malikat Emanukum was in fact that. Um, and once you get into um, marrying slaves, by the way, because um, that was an additional layer to my Malakat Aymanukum. There is a book that it's, uh, I can find, it was published a few years ago about I mean, not it was maybe a while ago now um, about the, the handmaidens in in the medieval world and the, as the expression itself connotes handmaidens what your right hands possessed or what your hands possessed which was a medieval institution in the Near East and beyond. And I, I think it, this whole issue needs to be restudied and revisited because it's, it's clear to me that it didn't just refer to slaves or prisoners of war. Um, 
abuses did occur. There is no question that although the Prophet clearly prohibited abducting people and selling them into slavery, uh, and Islamic law clearly prohibited slavery from any institution other than prisoners of war and only if there is a reciprocal enslavement of Muslims so in and preferred the paying of ransom and, and but clearly there were abuses anyway so in which the law got ignored and but but nevertheless there's a huge difference between the Quranic outlook on the matter and what the people ended up doing in practice. Uh, and it's and I think that this whole issue needs to be revisited. Uh, in a related question. But I uh, but I agree with you that it's not it, it is it, that that would be if in a different context I would say that that is in fact it, it doesn't necessarily have to do with slaves at all. Uh, in a related question, Jazakallah for such an enlightening and spiritually elevating spiritually elevating halakha. May Allah reward you. My question is just on marriage to a slave. You mentioned that their relationship as a slave ended with pregnancy. Was their relationship of slavery also ended after marriage without having children? Um, it's not only that. I mean, the there's a lot of fuqaha that said that if the slave converts to Islam, then they're no longer can be slave. Um, and a lot of slaves converted to Islam because of exactly that. Although, so later fuqaha, I mean, later juristic schools started saying, well, conversion doesn't automatically free people um, you know, so sort of imperial law, um, and of course, if you're married to someone who is supposed to be your slave, wh what does that mean? You know, it created a lot of problems in in practice, and so a lot of jurists started saying, well, uh, if you married a slave then they automatically become free um, um, but the best way I can there is a huge difference between theoretical thinking about it was clear that early Islam didn't like the institution of slavery and tried and there was a very strong ethic of manumission, of uh, and so to the, to the extent that in Islamic law books, there is no chapter in Islamic law books on slavery, there is only a chapter on manumission of slaves. But there was an imperial reality shortly after the death of the Prophet Islam became an empire and empires at that age all had slaves and they and there was an enormous amount of social resistance to 
I'll say moralists, people who were, so for instance, part of Islamic law is that a slave has the right to do a mukataba. The slave has a right to say, okay, you bought me as a slave, I want to buy my freedom. So you are legally bound to make a contract with your slave saying, if you pay me X amount of money, you earn your freedom as a slave. Now, that was radical. At that day and age, it was radical. You, you know, it, for, it, it was just absolutely revolutionary to actually force the owner of a slave to say, um, your labor is worth money and and if you you know reach and then the slave if the owner had demanded too much money the slave had the right to go to court and get a judge to set the price according to market value of what's how much money you you needed to pay to earn your freedom but although that's the law when it came to real practice very much like the issue of women divorcing themselves or women inheriting the, there was a huge disparity between legal theory and legal practice because when it came to real life of course there was an enormous amount of resistance what's interesting though is that because of um, the the because of the 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 slavery never became like it became in the West, where slaves just became chattel, uh, you know, just property, and you could do with them as you wish. Um, the primary the primary place where you found you found slavery as institution although islamic law managed to among the average human beings most of the the classes it dried up slavery it it continued to survive a was the very rich classes so the elite that often could afford to um, and the state which often bought slaves to enlist them in the military in other words to turn them into soldiers eventually the irony is that th these slaves um, that were constantly bought by the state from uh, from wars uh, enlisting them in the military eventually sl these slaves became the rulers in the the Mamluk dynasties in in Syria and Egypt where you know it's as far as I know the only place in human history where slaves actually became the rulers for many centuries um, so I, I mean the issue of the issue of slavery in Islam 
needs good historians and needs people who are um, needs to be studied from uh, people who are not writing to Western audience, you know, not trying to earn points with the West, but actually looking at history with all its complexity. And in the 60s, I remember 60s and 70s, there were a few, there were a couple of really good books that were published back then that were heading that direction. And I probably can find their, their time. And they're actually on the reading list uh, that Osuli has, because I remember I, I, I listed them. Uh, but since then, um, ever since Bernard Lewis published his work on slavery and Islam, and it's been downhill from there. Um, you know, since then, everyone who's written on it, it was either to earn points with the West or to uh, spite the West. Um, but it wasn't good, it's not good historical research. The subject is, it, 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 I mean, till now, even the, the couple of people who recently published about slavery, they have no explanation for why Islamic law books did not dare have a chapter on slavery, but would call it a chapter on money mission. How could you write about a subject like that and not explain this? What what type of what type of ethical code did the Prophet enlist in green in Muslims so that they found felt compelled to call their chapter? the chapter on many, many missions. What did it mean when the Prophet said it called slaves your brothers and sisters, and required that they be fed from what you're fed and clothed from what you're clothed and that you couldn't discriminate against them in treatment. What, what, did that, what import did that have? What did it mean when the, in slavery, the way you had sexual relations with slaves and the institution of slavery is rape? So what did it mean when it came for Islamic law, came in and said, well, you can't rape a slave. You can't coerce a slave to have sex. So then, and the slave could have a cause of action, the slave could sue her master in a court saying, this master doesn't have sex with me and is not satisfying my sexual desire, so judge, can you free me so I can go find someone who will have sex with me? This is completely alien to the institution of slavery in the West. But then you have those people who write about slavery in Islam completely ignore their stuff, completely ignore it. Absolutely, it's mind-boggling because, you know, and then they, they get into, you know, anyway. Um, like this guy, you know, wrote a whole book 
completely ignored the fatawa that says, no, you can't force a slave to have sex. Because the Prophet ﷺ did not do that. I, I don't know. Anyway. Okay, well, we're, we're basically out of time, but I had one more question that I thought was really interesting. Maybe I can read it and yeah, see if ahead. we can do a quick question, answer. Um, is it the right thing to do to tell someone that their spouse wasn't faithful to him or her, whether or not the other spouse asked you? Sometimes we feel we're not in a position to do that. And thank you always for an incredible halakha. Uh, um, Okay. Yeah, that, this is a hard question. Um, if you cannot, you cannot be, you cannot uh, end up uh, in, in being aiding a lie or a deception you cannot be a conspirator in a, a lie or a deception so first first make sure you completely cleanse your motivations because if it, in something like this you have to absolutely make sure that you are not driven by anything other than a sincere desire to stand by what is right and what is truth. In other words, that there is, you're not doing it, even you're not partly motivated by hate or anger or bitterness or jealousy or, uh, you know, anything like that. That's one. Two, it matters a great deal whether you are directly or indirectly being being involved in a lie. Um, so you know, uh, if what does that mean? Meaning, if if you are in in, in any way providing cover for the lie so then you are complicit in the lie so make sure that you're you know because that matters you know if if um, you know if I if I'm uh, if I'm a woman and I'm married to someone and that someone is friends with the cheating husband let's say and then I notice that the cheating husband says well I was you know, spending time at their home, house. But I know that, you know, then no, you're involving me in the lie. No, I can't allow you to do that. You can't use my home to cover your deceit. I, I'm not gonna allow my husband to to, to play that role. Um, or, you know, uh, if the, the, the husband, the cheating husband comes to our home and then 
in our home pretends to that he's a very loyal husband to his wife and uses our home and our company to f continue deceiving his wife and appearance of look you know we have great friends who trust me as your husband you know no, you 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 lie to your wife. Keep your distance. You know, don't involve me in your lie, in your deception. And if you do, then I'm gonna have to come clean. Um. Then the third thing, and that is, um. Whether. And this is, here is where you, you have to do ishtihad and, and Allah knows what your intentions. And that is just to, to try to, if, if you see the wife um, re relying on the lie to her detriment. So in other words, you know, she continues to believe that her husband is um, very devout and loving and that he is spending his, he's saving uh, the money for the children and so on. And it, then it, it, when you consider like, okay, is it, is it, and I think you, you will innately, if you purify your intentions and you'll innately know does it become harmful? In other words, if I was in the wife's positions, we can remember the, the golden rule of morality. Treat others as you would like to be treated, always. That is the golden rule of morality. Treat others as you would like to be treated. If I was in this wife's position and I was talking to my friend about my husband in the way I'm, she's talking to me, you know, my husband is wonderful, my husband is great. My, would I want to know the truth or not? And Allah knows your intentions. If you treat her with all sincerity, like you would be treated, then at least, then you've done the right thing in Allah's eyes. Um, I mean, people of course differ, but my own, I have had situations in, in my life where I've confronted things like that. And I have told you, I, I've always erred on the side of truth. Um, because um, um, I, I find it just after a while being implicated, even indirectly, in a lie it's just very it just it has a very unclean feeling um very just very very disturbing feeling and you know and i and i normally what i do is i pray on it and i pray on it and i pray on it and then and i think every time that i've confronted it uh i ended up just doing uh, speaking the truth although you know of course sometimes it means that 
relationships end and and whenever you you testify or you you say the truth uh you know it's always easier to put your head in the sand and pretend like problems don't because unfortunately people become very vindictive and and angry but that's the thing is that if you're dealing with Allah you know Um, and uh, you know I, I, the principle I've always lived by don't involve me don't don't suck me into your lies you know don't directly or indirectly use my home use my reputation use my name use my credibility into perpetuating a deceitful situation. I, I will not be a part of it. And I've actually included that even in uh, hus husbands that not fornicate, not uh, uh, adultery, but but even in like taking a second wife. Because the, the school that, of thought that I believe and follow is that you, you can't take a second wife unless your wife approves um, and so you know marrying the second wife and hiding or uh, uh, hiding it and in secret in other words I, I don't approve of that and I, I will not be a part of that okay thank you so much uh, for another incredible halakha um, <clears throat> thank you for being with us, and inshallah, we will look forward to seeing you hopefully on Saturday for the next one. We will see what it is. <laughs> inshallah. Inshallah. Um, and have a wonderful rest of the week, inshallah. Okay. So, Salaam alaikum, everyone. Salaam alaikum.